The Fantasy Animation Podcast is a completely independent production. It is made by experts in the field. Chris is a lecturer in liberal arts and visual cultures education at King's College London and author of The Computer Animated Film, available in all good bookshops. And I, Alex that is, am a senior lecturer in film and media studies at the University of Portsmouth and author of Encountering the Impossible, the fantastic in Hollywood fantasy cinema, available in even better bookshops. We do this podcast to provide audiences with an informative and hopefully entertaining guide through the ways in which you can not only enjoy fantasy and animation, but study it, examine it, explore it, and of course, make it and have a career in it. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi listeners and welcome to the latest episode of the Fancy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holiday, And me, Alex Sargent. Um, we are back uh, at the Mouse House, Alex. We're doing Disney, we're doing computer animation, we're doing very contemporary Disney as well. We're doing uh, their, as, as we record it now, their most recent computer animated, but their most recent film, uh, Wish from 2023, a kind of musical fantasy film with uh, a sort of nods, I think, to to most, if not all, of Disney's films of the past. Um, so I think there's lots of lots to say in kind of... And we haven't done Disney... I feel like we have not done Disney in a while, Alex. No, we haven't. No, you're right. Um, yeah, it's nice to re- come back to Disney. It's we, we seem to be, on this podcast, very interested in, in flops. You know, we've done <laughs> Cats quite recently yes. uh, and things like that. And whilst I, I think flop is probably a bit harsh for this, but obviously it's not performed very well at the box office, um, yep. but it was supposed to be this big celebration of kind of Disney's animation legacy, yeah, so yeah, it'll yeah. be interesting to talk about... Uh, why we think that might be or, or or you know is there a cultural reason is it just the film I don't know because um, I think the film's interesting but it's it's a bit of a mixed bag of success I think yeah um, and I'm very interested in talking about wishing I'd like to talk a lot about <laughs> wishing uh, this week because that's very much within my fantastical wheelhouse I was going to say that's per- perfect perfect um, yeah I have I think the Disney kind of celebration angle is particularly important I think there's lots of other links that we can make between this film and other texts that are doing the rounds in terms of celebrating Disney whether it's exhibitions whether it's kind of short films that bring together these characters and these stories and, and the kind of Disney legacy um, I'm also really interested in in the design of the film I think there's lots to say about its kind of particular look with regards to Disney films of the past and also kind of similar computer animated films and and how it might sit in relation to some other three-dimensional CG films we've perhaps perhaps looked at but um, it won't thankfully it won't just be us because I think we both just watched the film and we're still kind of digesting it so we need an expert really to kind of talk to us about about Disney more broadly which is perfect because we are joined by Dr Robin Muir who is lecturer in media and communication in the Department of Sociology, which I'd like to talk about um, at the University of Surrey. Robin's research is uh, interested in how identity is constructed and interpreted within cultural phenomenon, including uh, images of femininity in the Disney princess um, 
uh, I guess, franchise. Uh, her recent book, The Disney Princess Phenomenon, A Feminist Analysis, from uh, last year, explores precisely Disney's princess films, merchandise, and consumer experiences to provide a kind of more holistic understanding of um, this kind of phenomenon of princesses and their wider representations within um, society. She's also founder and director of the Disney Culture and Society Research Network, uh, an international and very interdisciplinary space for Disney uh, Studies scholars. And she's also the co-founder and co-editor of the International Journal of Disney Studies, which is a peer, new peer-reviewed journal from intellect, drawing from a variety of academic and industrial methods to examine this monster that is the Walt Disney Company. So, Robin, thank you ever so much for joining us um, on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, we're really grateful to, to kind of have you and help you uh, to help us make sense of this uh, yeah, this kind of quite odd, well, not odd, but kind of an, an interesting film that is looking back on Disney. And, and also, I think I think we're all interested in in sort of how to approach Disney, how to write about Disney, how to talk about Disney, um, to kind of think through it, to critique and to politicise it. I know that's a kind of key element of, of your work. But um, I guess I wanted to sort of, before we get into the nuts and bolts of, of Wish and its relationship to sort of magic and, and fantasy and, and its animated style, um, as I mentioned, I was really struck by the fact you work in a sociology department. Uh, rather than kind of like a straight out and out film and media department. So I was, I'm really interested in what it means uh, and, and what it means for you to kind of study Disney and Disney animation and Disney femininity, but through the sort of sociological angle. What does, what does being a sociologist with Disney mean? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think one of the benefits of studying Disney is that it is so interdisciplinary. So you can really kind of study it from a lot of different angles and facets and yeah the amount of scholars that I meet um, who come from a wide range of different academic backgrounds is still vast. And I'm still meeting, you know, new people that are coming from new areas all the time. And I think for me, I always came at it from a very interesting angle because my first degree and technically my PhD was in politics. Uh, right. I, I did it in a politics department. Um, and I think that's always very interesting because when often when we think of politics, we think of voting and we think of international relations and, you know, um, po policy. political party yeah, yeah. and policy mm -hmm. and government and, and all of these kinds of things. But I news always, night. News <laughs> night. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, what 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 have the politicians done next? What what is going on? What do people think about it? General elections. And actually, fun fact, when I did my A-level in politics, I actually did want to be an academic, but I wanted to study elections. That's what I first wanted to do. Very different to what I do now. But, you know, we all change. We all change. <laughs> and yeah, so I very much came at it from a from a political lens because I was coming at it from really feminist theory and something that always really stuck with me throughout all of my you know, political learning was the idea that the personal was the political. And that stayed with me. I mean, it's it's still with me now, but it really struck me, this concept of the personal is political, because a lot of people would say to me, Robin, why are you even bothering to look at Disney? Because who cares? It's just kids films, like it doesn't matter. And obviously you want to sit there and scream, yes, it does. Um, but you obviously then have to justify why that is, unfortunately. And I think the main thing is that 
things that are personal to people and obviously yeah in in many kind of like feminist um theoretical circles we can talk about you know women's voting rights we can talk about bodily autonomy we can talk about all of these kind of like key things but actually things that are trivialized like children's media and even women's media from a feminist media studies perspective so i always really kind of came at it from this idea of how do we as a society explain these really important concepts around gender around identity um around consent around building positive relationships through films like Disney and because Disney's such a huge global media conglomerate they're one of the perfect kind of franchises and, and companies to choose to to explore how we make meaning about all of these important things. So let's to bring it on to, to Wish um, I guess if I could ask you sort of a two-part question or a two-part challenge for you maybe to start the, the podcast off which is that one could you tell us the story of the film as you see it so that I suspect some listeners might have seen it once and maybe have forgotten it or some actually as unusual for us probably haven't seen the film because it's only been out uh, relatively recently and then maybe tease us with what um what what kind of in terms of what you're just talking about the politicking of Disney the way Disney contributes these ideas what what ideas did it throw up for you that we might sort of have a little chat about over the next the next hour or so? Yeah, of course. So I was not sure what to expect from Wish based on a lot of the, the trailers. And Disney do this a lot now where, you know, you think it's going to be about one thing and then it really turns out to be about something completely different that you weren't necessarily prepared for but essentially wish is a film um about a kingdom uh, called rosas um, and it's kind of based on in an island in the mediterranean sea one of the first things that really kind of like threw out at me at this was just the vagueness of that and obviously in many aspects of kind of fantasy and animation there is always going to be a vagueness around kingdoms and and things like that it's this mystical magical kingdom that you know isn't real but obviously there are some senses of communities and you can kind of see the way that some communities are being represented and how different cultures are kind of being put together which kind of has its benefits but also has its complications as well around kind of representation and that was something that kind of really immediately struck me about the film which was the setting yes yeah, so there's this there's this kingdom of rosas um it's a magical kind of island where there is a um there's a king and a queen king uh, magnifico and queen amaya and Magnifico basically grants the greatest desires, their greatest wishes of, of his subjects. And it really turns into this really big spectacle and event. You know, you get your wish granted. Not everyone does. And it's just this really magical kind of um, appearance. And it's a way that, you know, Magnifico is, is loved and, and cherished by all of the people in the kingdom. But we start to see some cracks in what is appears to be this quite uh, utopia vibe of a, of a place. And this is where we're introduced to Asha. Uh, and she is a um, member of um, the Kingdom of Rosas and she's interviewing to become King Magnifico's apprentice. And it's at this point where she starts to realise that all is not what it seems and that actually people are giving up their wishes to Magnifico, which is giving 
Rosas a lot of power and to an extent Magnifico a lot of power and then they're forgetting their wish they no longer remember what it is which I'll be honest was the first red flag um <laughs> and then she's like well you know what are some of these wishes like why won't you grant them and he starts to get super defensive which is obviously the second red flag um where he's all like well you know i deem i deem what is right and what is wrong and what's good for rosas and what's not and then you're like oh oh okay like this oh right this isn't good and asher is kind of like no this this isn't right she really stands up to it this obviously does not go down well and uh she does not get the um she does not get the uh, the internship, uh, the apprenticeship, so to speak. And uh, but she leaves with this sense of, you know, this is hugely unjust. Uh, I can't believe this is happening. I need to do something about it. And she's trying to tell her family about it and they're not really believing her. So, again, you've got all of these kind of like wider cultural community issues happening. Um, and so she runs away and she wishes on a star. And that's where it really starts to kick off because the star actually appears. And the star has power. The star helps her uh, very cute goat, Valentino, to talk. And Asha basically takes it upon herself to try and and fix this mess that Magnifico has has made. So I also didn't know what to expect. And I actually, my, my kind of post-pandemic watching of Disney and Pixar films has been kind of terrible and given that I don't really watch many films anyway as Alex likes to point out regularly um, one can only imagine how little viewing I've actually done so I I seem I didn't really know much about Wish before I started Uh, and I think kind of if you go through the Disney Disney quote-unquote formula you have your music you know this is a musical fantasy you have your sort of twist villain you have your I want song Mm -hmm. you have all the things where you would suggest that this is a kind of um kind of quintessential or or a a Disney film that has hits all the hits all the marks I think the extra kind of textual stuff around the film with regards to it being this celebration so this sort of celebration of the Disney centenary the fact that it kind of ties in really to two to two simultaneous, I think, events within the Disney um, Corporation. One is the the Disney 100 exhibition, um, which features this sort of hologram of of uh, Walt welcoming people to this to this exhibition and kind of curating mm. this history of, of of Disney as a company and Disney Animation to visitors. And, and then the second one, um, perhaps more directly, is the link to that short film Once Upon a Studio, which perhaps with more intensity brings together all of these kind of characters from from Disney past. This film I didn't kind of explicitly see it's it's kind of I didn't explicitly see its references or its its status as a celebration through this sort of accumulation of different references. But what I what I did see was that it it sort of begins with this it has all the it has all the beats of of mm. typical and classic, and you know, we could. I'd, I'd like to talk about the difference between typical and classic Disney because it seems to come up whenever we talk about uh, about Disney. And, um, but it wasn't. It wasn't uh, this intertextual uh, extravaganza that I was perhaps expecting. It was. It was more playing with the tone, I think, of Disney or the kind of character archetypes. Um, I mean, I'm not entirely. Con- I wasn't entirely convinced by the film. I'm a bit ambivalent about the about the film. Um, I think it has some good spec, a couple of good moments and a couple of um, kind of good musical numbers. But I don't know. I'm sort of wrestling with the film. But I think it's interesting to place it in 2023 with regards to the Disney Center and to see how Disney is sort of managing its its identity, which of course it's very good at. Alex, you're looking quizzical. 
No, um, I think that's all really interesting. I think, I guess, I think to me, the, 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 the I was expecting a lot more kind of, you know, Aladdin genie-esque references to Disney past. Yeah, I mean, me there's too. a goofy in the corner kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And there is a bit of that going on. There's, you know, companions that are clearly the seven dwarfs. There are flowers that look like they're from Alice in Wonderland. That, yeah. You know, they're, they're there to be found. But, but actually what it's doing, and I'm trying to work out whether I liked that it was doing it or not, um, <laughs> is it's, it's, it's kind of seems to be taking its mantra, which is the, the kind of central kind of, you know, uh, you know the Disney theme, the theme that plays under the um, the kind of the logo of when you wish upon a star makes no difference who you are, anything your hearts. I can't even remember the lyrics, but it's something like everything that anything your hearts desire, your dreams will come true, or mm. something like that. And it and it wants to consider what those words mean in terms of what Disney is yeah. supposed to be doing in 2023. Uh, and I think that's its that's its mission, and it tries to explore that through the, the narrative that Robin so expertly kind of summarised there. That's sort of my take on it. Yeah, and I think I think there's definitely... I've sensed a really interesting shift in some of the films that have come out recently, and I think something that Disney really struggle with is just how successful Frozen was. And I think one of the reasons why they are now struggling with this is because everybody just wants another Frozen. Mm. And they did Frozen 2. And to be f- I actually prefer Frozen 2 to the to the first one. Well I personally. well I prefer Tangled, so I'm in you know, I'm 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 all over the place. But uh, yeah, anyway, sorry. And I and I and I like Moana, so <laughs> I don't Yeah, and I, uh, I love, No, I love yeah. Moana yeah. and but I think Frozen was this really huge, big phenomenon that, you know, took on a life of its own, essentially. And I think since that film, sometimes, I don't, you know, I can't speak for all consumers, but there's this desire, this this kind of need, okay, give us another Frozen. Give us mm. one, come on, give us another Frozen. Every, you know... But actually, the stories that they're trying to explore, you know, Moana was such a, you know, I've written about Moana from an eco-feminist perspective, and it was absolutely fascinating. The same with with Raya and the Last Dragon, you know, the story and the morals and the values that were being put forward in that film were absolutely fantastic, but it didn't really do very well. And obviously, you've got the COVID-19 pandemic to think about there, you know, it didn't get released in cinemas and all of those kinds of things. But I think... With Wish, people were really kind of hyping up, thinking, right, okay, you know, Disney 100, like, it's happening. It's it's going to yeah, be another yeah. Frozen. And it, it wasn't. Um, and that doesn't mean to say that Wish was bad, because I don't think it was bad. I, I think it was a really nice story. I really liked the characters. I loved Asha. I thought, you know, from my kind of, like, princess femininity, feminism um, perspective, oh, my gosh, I was living my best life. She's a fantastic heroine, you know. She's she's a leader and she's compassionate and she's determined and she's assertive. She stands, you know, she believes in justice. It was amazing to see. I was like, this is a fantastic role model for for young children and obviously you saw a lot of these kind of you know um references back to other kinds of films and and things that they've you know covered but i think the i think alex you're right in terms of this 
this real sense of wishing. And I think wishing has been a really core part of the Disney brand uh, since its inception. And it features quite significantly in, in many of the stories, but particularly at the beginning. I mean, I'm really thinking of, you know, Cinderella and, and Pinocchio and those, some of those really classic animated films. And I think the concept of I think wishing, I remember actually speaking with my um, with my colleague Rebecca Rowe about this and she was saying how this concept of wishing, you know, seemed not abstract, but it was always being done in films, whereas the film Wish really kind of created this environment of, okay, and now it's about you and you can go on and achieve your wish, however, you know, practical that may be. Well, yeah, there's, but, but but to me, there's the issue of practicality, which is obviously important. But there's also the issue of kind of the individual versus the societal, mm. right? Uh, and and individual wishes versus societal wishes. Mm -hmm. And I think the film is is interested in it, but I'm not quite sure what it's trying to say, or if it, if it knows what it's trying to say, because it seems to be you know to go back to i found the lyrics now of, of the pinocchio song but so it's it's when you wish upon a star makes no difference who you are well in 2023 in a kind of you know liberal world post black live matters world it does make a difference who mm -hmm. you are because because there are entrenched privileges um that, that really will affect your ability to wish anything your heart desires will come to you well it depends what your heart desires um because your heart desires things based on the society you live in and also desires things that can be abhorrent to the society you live in and the perhaps central contradiction of of wish is the is it seems to suggest that we should you know it does that kind of classic we should be free to pursue our heart's desires but of course the villain pursues his heart's desires um and that's not good um so the villain should stop pursuing his heart desires mm -hmm. um and everyone else should start pursuing their heart's desires but once you've set that contradiction in motion you have the question of who gets to desire um, and what do they get to desire? And I think the film is is interested in that, right? There are bits where, like, the, the kind of the climax of the movie is all about this communal wish um, that, that overpowers the kind of villainy. And then there are other moments where it seems to be very individualistic. It's about kind of the, the power of the wish. Sometimes it's about sometimes it's about owning the wish, and, and it's not necessarily about it coming true, but it's about it saying something about yourself. It's playing with all these different ideas, and I'm still kind of... Yeah, I'm still trying to let them settle in my brain. I don't know, Robin, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot to be said about around structure and agency. And I think that's when we're talking about the the wishes and this idea of a, a communal wish versus an individual wish, I, I think it is very much all about the structure and agency. But I did see a... Uh, a particular point in the film and I'm going to I'm now going to have to also google the lyrics to make sure um but it's in the song this wish which is my favorite in the in the film and she says um oh where is it so I make this wish to have something more for us than this and I think that particular line is really kind of addressing there's there's a lot I mean you could really get kind of like philosophical about this and I'm thinking about like Plato's cave and this idea mm -hmm. of oh, okay so we're all sat in the cave and we're seeing all of these you know projections from the wall behind us and that's all we've known so 
there's no reason for us to kind of think beyond it. Whereas actually in, in this case, Asha is, she is thinking beyond, you know, what has been presented to her in, in this community. But you're also absolutely right in terms of, you know, doesn't matter who you are. It, it, it does, it does. And it's, it's, the concept of the kingdom of roses aside from the really weird king who goes on a bit of a power trip and you know weird um that is is this kind of you know is very utopian in its in its conception this idea that you know everybody is you know lives in harmony and lives together and i think that's where you really kind of get, dig into this fantasy because i think that's a fantasy for for many of us um the idea that we can all you know live together in our cultures in our different communities in peace and harmony with one another um but in the real world that is not always how things work and not everybody gets to make those wishes or gets opportunities in the same way that others do and i think that's that kind of leads us to this area of what what can be quite complex in any film not just animation but any film is how much of that film is designed for us to be able to escape to and it's this glorious idea of okay we're going to imagine that a place like this could be real and that I could live there and how wonderful that would be versus the reality that you actually find yourself in and I think that can be quite a complex thing for audiences because for, for many of us, myself included, I use all sort, all forms of media as a way to escape the things that I'm currently that are within my reality. Um, and I think that's something that's really hard to kind of grapple with. You know, how much can we put on, you know, uh, companies to kind of produce these worlds that we know aren't real and aren't necessarily even attainable versus, well, is it nice for us to just think about conceptualizing that world even for a short period of time that would potentially create change in the future and uh, just to kind of yeah just to continue on that that thread it's that's i think that's what i found most interesting about the movie is that you know with you know with 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 theories of fantasy in my head if you throw your you know with plato if you throw like a, a, a sort of you know a very radical kind of a, a zizek at this kind of thing that what the what the argument would be would be that the the fantasy fantasy isn't the the disney rhetoric of fantasy is often what what we do is we allow you to wish mm. and we allow you to make your dreams come true. But actually what fantasy is, is it provides the schema by which you know what to wish for, mm. right? It's, 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 it's that kind of, it's sort of what you say there, Robin, it's the impossible object grasped through fantasy. Um, and Disney's created a hell of a lot of impossible objects for us over the years. Um, so I started thinking about sort of, so who's, Di so who's Disney in this movie? Uh, and obviously the answer is it's the lovely um, star that comes down and grants all our wishes. But, you know, certainly before that arrives, there's a there's a good argument that kind of the villain is Disney, right? The villain yeah. is Disneyland. It's 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 yep. I am the wish giver. Come to me with your wishes and I will either take them away if they don't fit within my mm. kind of model of what this culture needs to look at and give you something else to wish for. Um, or I'll, or, or yeah, or, or I'll make them come true if they're as banal as you want to sow something, you know. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll morph the collective will of wishing into what works for our society, 
And if what you want is some Disney years, then that's fine. We can make that come true. But if you what you want is peace, harmony, structural change, yeah, yeah, <laughs> structural change, yeah, no, um, yep. well. There's, there is no, there, yeah, there is no, uh, there is no uh, diversity land, uh, you know. So, I, I think I don't. Obviously, that's not the reading of the film it wants or encourages. But, but, but it is it, to give the film, give the studio credit. It's, it's, it in a film called Wish, where there is a wish giver, to so even dangle that as a as a way of thinking of that movie is relatively, um, uh, I don't know, conniving or brave. One of the two. <laughs> Yeah. I think that I think that's very interesting because of course at the end of the film and I'm, I'm sorry for anyone that hasn't seen it and therefore this spoils the ending for you um, is that it's Asher who essentially becomes the wish giver yeah. um, and maybe in some kind of strange way um, it is this kind of journey right so we've got at the beginning we've got King Magnifico who decides what wishes are, are given and what wishes aren't. And, you know, maybe that is kind of like an allusion to the Disney company and it's kind of like the way that it has, you know, created particular images and, you know, really kind of like cultural changes, really. You know, obviously none of this was happening in a vacuum. You know, Disney didn't do it alone. There were way, you know, there were loads of other things that were happening at various points in history that contributed to a lot of, you know, kind of cultural changes and, and cultural norms and expectations. But Disney was, was a part of it for sure. So you've got that kind of bit. And then you've got the kind of very kind of hopeful but abstract oh, okay well here's a star that's come down and the star can like you know it just kind of shakes itself around and you know can make animals talk and and whatnot um but then at the end it's asher who's given the wand because star has to go back to the sky because star needs to go and help other people and it's asher that's that's kind of given that power and sometimes i wonder if you know it is almost disney kind of saying the power is now with you and to an extent oh it's very complex isn't it because on the one hand disney have have come far in many of its um endeavors in terms of how they're trying to do things and the ways in which they're trying to do them they have come far that's not to say that they do not have further to go and they have made various amounts of mistakes along the way um but actually kind of that, it almost kind of symbolized to me this kind of concept of listening to the audience and, you know, the, the, the wishing wand, the fairy godmother's wand, so to speak, being handed to Asher, just a normal kind of citizen. You know, she's not a princess, sadly. Um, that would have been great for my research. Um, but, you know, she's not a princess. She's not a queen. She's not this kind of like magical fairy. Her hair doesn't glow. She's not an ice queen or anything like that. She's just a normal person. And I think that says something because, yes, you've got these wider kind of structures and, and agency within that structure in terms of, OK, well, how much is she actually going to be able to do? But at least it's kind of there. And I think it signifies that they are kind of listening. And I think in many ways they have listened to to what their audiences want. But I think in other ways, they've really struggled um, with some of the moves that the company has made and, and how they have made those moves. So I think it's, 
I'm not going to say it's completely self-reflective um, because I think ultimately they wanted to make a nice story about this concept of wishing and, you know, the birth of the fairy godmother, which can obviously lead to various kind of sequels and, and whatnot. But I think there is something really there about this transferring of kind of or this encouragement of more agency in, in audiences. Mm. I mean, I... I... It's the the tensions in the film that you that you both mm. kind of described and the and the ambivalences that I find quite interesting because it, there's the the key line well there's lo lots of things I think one is um, there is a despite her normality there is a, a a sort of broader framing of Asher as in some way like exceptional similar to sort mm. of Encanto that there's a degree of exceptionality given that the star sort of falls from the sky like and, and even Magnificent yes. like what happened here who is this person who's so there's an interesting sort mm. of she is both normal and exceptional and in fact she has to be exceptional because apparently for all their collective desire the town still want a ruler who controls so so they sort of mm. there's this so there's a, a kind of interesting tension because that you have these individual wishes you have these individual wishes that are framed in these inside out like orbs, these little memory slash inside out mm. style orb things. Um, so you have these individual wishes that are uh, that are then supposed to be they are, then are when they are returned. There's a funny line when when they're returned at the very very end. One of the characters says something like one of the male characters says, "Oh great, I've got my wish back. Now I'll be able to like work for it." And it's like, "Oh okay." So so I I read them. I read the town as this sort of. This, they're still individualized. There's still this kind of group of. They're a group of individuals who still want a mm. ruler to control them. Um, the issue that they seem to have, and they and the film has with Magnifico, is that he hasn't worked for it because he's not willing to actually. There's something when the, when the, when that character says something like, "Yeah, I've got my wish, and, I, and now I can work hard for it." It's sort of presenting this really interesting very american way of thinking about wish fulfillment versus this magnificent american dream yeah well exactly but but it's it's and that's that's where the film doesn't really it ha it's a bit jarring because i i kind of take alex's yeah take alex's point um that it's it, magnifico has the same he, he, he's not really done anything wrong he's just doing what the film sets up at the end as something we should all do like we should we should all look up mm. no go on just for the record, I, I think he does quite a no, lot. No, no, no. But you, but, but, but I guess my point is he is followed his hopes and who dreams. Who is allowed to make yeah. that judgment? Yes, yeah. exactly. He, yes. he is one, one of a number. The same logic. We should all be allowed to follow. Yeah, the dreams. exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah. they've just a lot of characters could begin. Any one of those that member of that community could continue on that trajectory and become the next Magnifico quite easily because they've all been given mm. the power to follow their follow their own wishes. So things are very personal to them. There doesn't seem to be. There's a real tension in the film between collective action and desire and individuality and i don't think the film reconciles that by the end because individual th dreams are returned to the individuals who then say great i've now got it but i now i'm now a better person for that and i can work if i work hard i might just achieve it and then they go mm. well we still want somebody to look after us so this exceptional person we want we want to be governed we can't we still want some degree of control so they then anoint her as this this sort of head of state so it's a very odd yeah it's a it's a very odd tension but i i sort of so i'm intrigued i'm interested in that as a as a potential does, conflict just does this link to the point you made robin about kind of cultural specific specificity at all in that he says having two goes at one word um uh in that there's something about 
the fact, yeah, but because there is no, you know, f- for for this film to be able to celebrate some kind of idea of collectivism as a wish that is meaningful and has value and isn't isn't something that inhibits individuality, which seems to be largely what it's interested in, it would have to present some kind of coherent cultural structure. It would have to have some sort of, you know, sense of cultural tradition, some sort of sense of tradition, you know, or, or, you know, some sort of schema. And and you're right, what the film ha- the, the the land is it seems to in its celebration of in, of of various different ethnicities, races coming together, it it doesn't have that kind of sense of a coherent community. I don't know. Um I mean, I think the thing that really spoke to me when I was watching, especially this representation of of the of the community of of Rosas and the celebration of different cultures and different communities coming together, you know, a lot of these people had escaped other kingdoms. Um, from from my memory of the film, there was this idea that you could come to Rosas um, and you would be safe there uh, if you had to leave another kingdom. Um, and I think that that said a lot, but th- theoretically, something that really spoke to me um, was Edward Said's Orientalism uh, in, in how the kingdom was being set up. Um, because many times and you know i'm not a, a fantasy expert by any means but in my experience of kind of fairy tales or at least representation of fairy tales in animation the kingdoms are always incredibly specific okay uh, even if you don't know the name of the kingdom you know the the structure of the kingdom you've got the you've got the royalty you've got the the nobility and then you've got everybody else whereas in rosas it's not really like that um and also there's they've kind of tried to do this kind of um combination and um community of cultures but they're being very vague about what all of those different individual cultures are and they're kind of all meshed in together and as i was watching i was like i feel like this is partly an attempt to say okay look we're trying to represent you know different cultures and make sure that they're on on screen and i think that's very important because i think it's very important for everyone to be able to see themselves represented on screen specifically in a positive way rather than through harmful stereotypes or anything like that but also if you're just kind of like molding all of these cultures together without really saying anything about them you're not really representing them and that's something that I also, you know, that's been written about very extensively with with films like Aladdin, for example, where, you know, you've got this imaginary uh, kingdom of, of Agrabah and there's all of these kind of different mixtures of different kind of like cultural things. And they've all just kind of been muddled together and, you know, in the name of fantasy, which I mm. just have a real kind of problem with. So. I think, sorry, my tangent on there, I've kind of like forgotten your initial question there, Alex. No, 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 no. I, I mean, so have I, but it was a good tangent. I think exactly, I'd go even, I'm going to be even more grumpy. I'd say there is no culture. Yeah. There is no culture. I think there's that's a fair. Bunch of, uh, there's a bunch of individuals it's vague. having a relationship with this one leader. And yeah. And that's about, that's about it. And, and in, Yeah, that's know, it. God, there's no nobility. There's no nobility. There's no tradition. There's no structure. There's no, there's just individuals, families. There are families yes. at least. Yeah. Um, Families and 
one leader yeah. and government and families is what it sort of seems to be. So it's, yeah. you know, God, what we've done. Plato, Zizek, <laughs> Said. Well, it, it's kind of a, a, you know, Baudrillard's famous criticism of, of, of Disneyland. It's the kind of, it's this kind of, it's bright lights and shiny things covering up an abyss of meaning that there is no culture. There is no, there is no tradition. There is no history. There is no any of this stuff. And without that stuff, there's no collective identity to mm. represent. And I don't know... I mean, this might be my naivety, but it, traditions always have to start somewhere, right? Like they they always come from something, and and something can sometimes come from nothing because you have to you have to build it. But there wasn't really any building either in that film, and I think that was quite difficult. And something that really struck me as you were talking about Chris was when we were talking about Asher and you know the fact that you know I kind of got excited. I was like, oh, is she going to become queen? And then I was like, and then she can be in the Disney princess phenomenon. And I was being very selfish in my thought process as mm -hmm. I was watching this film. But this idea that she she is normal, but yes, she also had to be exceptional. And I think to me that said a lot about identity politics, especially for a woman of colour. This idea that, yeah, you need to be normal so that we can, um, you know, relate to you in some way, but you also have to be better than everyone else to to prove mm -hmm. how exceptional you are. Absolutely. And obviously that's not, as as a woman, I, I've, I've lived that experience in terms of, I mean, I'm thinking of America Ferreira's, you know, Barbie monologue. You have to be this, but you also have to be this. You have to be this and you have to be this. And obviously when it comes to feminism and identity politics, it's inherently intersectional. It, it has to be. And I don't have the lived experience of, of being a woman of colour, but obviously reading, you know, authors like Bell Hooks, you, you know, I'm, I'm working and, and reading scholars like um, Michelle Angerbag, you know, there are, there are things where this is, it, it was really kind of speaking to me about this idea that the pressure was really all on her. Like she had help, um, which is good because, you know, heroines can't do it all alone. Um, but there was also just this idea of, yes, you need to be normal, but you also need to be exceptional. And I think that's just a mm. constant battle that many people have to constantly try and get through but especially women um and that really kind of spoke to me and it really kind of prompted me as as you were saying that chris yeah no i think that's that's yeah that's absolutely right um and i think there's something i mean writers that talk that talk writers that both talk and critique discourses of intersectionality and about multiple forms of oppression that kind of compound themselves talk about uh, and you know, there's some writers from even like le from legal frameworks actually. When people like Wendy Brown talking about you know the, the way that the legal and justice system is set up, where women essentially have to pick their discrimination because they have to pick whether or not they they feel like they're being discriminated against because of the color of their skin or the fact that they're a woman, uh, because the, the the world is not set up to ac to account for intersectional forms of injustice. So um, there are two there are two little uh, little features that might uh, jump us into another. Uh, discussion here that are worth flagging up which makes Magnifico not Disney what, one is that he makes people forget mm. their wishes and obviously that on a sociological kind of societal structural level that is exactly the opposite function of fantasy right the, the whole point of fantasy is that you remain you may you may you remain stuck within an imagined relationship with the with the impossible object and in a way people losing their wishes is 
it, it completely changes the game because it means that the, the story becomes about kind of giving people back their identity when actually, um, rather than kind of tying them to the social, he'd be actually a much better villain if he, if he made them just remember the wishes and, and remind them constantly that they haven't been granted yet. That would be much a much more devious plan. Um, the second thing that's worth flagging up, which makes it, it clearly that he's not Disney, is that, and the, the heroine's name, who's Asha. Asha. forgotten, um, Asha, draws um uh and she likes drawing and that's a little clue that uh it's to the drawn that we must now mm. go and i wondered if that would be a good segue to now talk about um S- star and the effect of the star and because we saw there's a whole kind of is it a subplot or a sub bit of this movie that we haven't really spoken about which is this kind of the the effect of the star on the world the whimsy of the star on the world we get dancing Mm. chickens we get uh whimsical goat sidekicks we get you know this is where it feels at its most disney celebratory so um, i think that star offers belief um on the one hand, Star is just cute um, and is definitely there for making the money and pennies for merchandising, which I'll be honest, yep. I will admit, they absolutely did for me. Did I buy the Light Up Star Christmas ornament for my Christmas tree? Yes. Yes, I did. I did. Did I want to buy the very large plush of Star? Yes, I did. Did I do it? No. I managed to maintain some self-control. But I think, so On if I'm going to be like, if I'm putting my merchandising hat on, like, on the one hand, that was all about the merchandising of it, because it was this very cute anthropomorphic star that doesn't speak Mm. very adorable flitting around here and there doing very cutesy things and basically enabling and empowering asha to continue on her journey because really it's asha that's doing the work like asha is is pretty much Mm -hmm. doing it all right um with help from from people including valentino the goat um but but also it it is mainly asha i think all of that's true i think where i'm left kind of with a slightly puzzled expression is right but it's not like the star comes down and makes pinocchio Mm. a real boy or give i mean it gives him a a, she the star gives her a wand at the end of the film but that's not what that's not what drives Mm. the plot um it, it comes down and it turns a goat into a talking sidekick and and creates a kind of mm. bit of chaos. And I'm kind of really interested in because I think you're right. There is something. I guess I'm interested in is in a way it's that bit is getting at something that's not articulated as well in the movie, but might kind of be more affecting. Which is like what Disney actually provides, right? We could talk about kind of surrogate characters or everything, but it's that really what it does is it kind of gives us a bit of joy in this world and a bit of Mm. mirth and a bit of humor everyone's very kind of you know there's a few gags but everyone's quite kind of Mm. you know um guarded and sincere and um and it's everything's taken very seriously and then we get some wisecracking and some you know we get this you know a sebastian the crab-esque character uh you know all these kind of we're reminded of of disney's capacity not to just kind of provide message and dogma and that kind of thing, but actually kind of just do silly mm. things. And it's the introduction of silliness into the movie at that point where it almost feels more sure-footed. It's like, okay, this is what Disney provides. And I don't know, 
I'm not quite sure what it is, but it's it's this kind of you know. I mean, cuteness is a really mm. interesting thing. It provides cuteness. Mm -hmm. What is what is cuteness? Cuteness. There's an aesthetic quality to cuteness. There's a subservient quality to cuteness. There's a you know. There's lots of things going on there, but it provides these kind of aesthetics that that we all know Disney for, and perhaps a far more powerful and affecting to young audiences than any. You know, do we really remember when we watched Snow White, the I'm Wishing song and the problematic waistline? Probably, subconsciously, subliminally. Otherwise, there won't be. There would be slightly less societal ills. But what we're struck with is what's the the, the spell it casts is. It's dopey. It's the seven dwarfs. It's the magical animals. It's these kind of these moments of uh, whimsy. I guess is uh, is is what I'm I'm interested in. So, it's almost like the star is quite functionless. Uh, despite being very powerful, <laughs> yeah. No, I think the the kind of the the func the idea of kind of characters and function and and I was thinking about kind of yeah neoten Disney's relationship to neoteny and character design and 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 there is a there, there is a the stars function as a piece of merchandise and this kind of cute anthropomorphic. There are there are discourses of cuteness that also feed into the the representation of 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 Asher in terms of waist, big rounded face, big rounded, big round eyes. Um, so all of the characters are touched by this this kind of this uh, this element of cuteness because that's what Disney like Disney going back to Janet Wesco writing on Disney and and talking about the idea of neoteny and and the childlike being a function of design that cuteness is embedded yes it definitely has a merchandise it obviously it does have a merchandising kind of quality but what does it mean what does it mean when it's also in the film and and the kind of problems of it being in the film because I agree with you that it's it's there to sell. It's there to sell merchandise. Great. It's also there in a film that's tr that's that, and as you've you've written about, you know, the, the the way that these these Disney princesses are designed is is one of the ways that Disney hasn't really progressed in lots and lots of ways. And they and when we did our episode on Encanto, you can talk all about how these these people went and had a look at the the people. You know, we went to Polynesia and had a look at things and we went to latin america and we looked at it and said yeah but you're still they're still two white guys directing these movies so it, mm. so there, you cannot shake this orientalist view of what you think other cultures is and they're not and and so there's a there is a there is still lots of disney's work to kind of do but anyway i just think the kind of the psychology of of the character design of these characters it has this obviously as you've written about that it has this kind of commercial impetus but within the films themselves they are they are doing some kind of um, as the personalities of these female characters become more adventurous and they obtain this autonomy and, and as you say that Asher is this person that's really driving the narrative it seems like the design of the characters has yet to catch up with the way that they act mm. Mm. but maybe I'm just being grumpy can we talk about design we can talk about design no 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 can we talk about design yeah. because I mean I don't really have anything to say about it but I would be fascinated <laughs> that you both thought of it because I, I was I, I was, you know, I was struck by it's kind of, you know, the 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 the, the images are kind of mm. flattened. Yeah. There's a kind of it's 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 it, yeah. There's a there's something going on in the look of the Definitely. movie that, that kind of does this yeah. looking forward and looking back thing going on. Yeah. Um, but but over to well over to both of you, Chris. Why don't you do a bit of it, Chris, and then Robin? No, I well I love I reckon you've probably got yeah. I love quote some software at me, aren't you? No, no, no. no. I love so I really my, my favorite. I mean, I did like. There were two things I really liked in the film. One, I loved the musical number, knowing what I know now. I thought that was fab, mm. absolutely fab. Um, and some of the kind of uses of light. And there's one bit where I think Magnifico says something like, don't worry, 
uh, it's just a play on light. And I thought, oh, that's a really interesting way of... Like the, I thought the lighting in the film was fab as well. Um, the other thing I really liked was the design, the kind of flattened... This sort of hybrid, and Disney has a has a history, a recent history of this with regard. I mean, it goes back to Bolt. So, two thousand and eight, you have non photorealistic rendering. You have particular programs that are being used to kind of flatten the images, three dimensional images, and give them a painterly quality. A couple of years later, you have Paper Man. Um, a couple of years later, you have Get a Horse, the short Disney film that kind of combines flattened, flattened images, and and, um, and then you have. This so this film, which seems to it's it's not it's not hybrid in the traditional sense, but a lot of the pre-release material is around how it combines cell cell animation or forms of cell animation with computer animation. So it has forms of kind of tune shading or cell shading where you have computers made to look like cell animation. But a lot of the the material that I've been reading about around the production design of the film uh, is about th combining three D animation with this watercolor style, this watercolor storybook mm. style that's become this hallmark certainly of the the last sort of 10 even uh, tangle does it really well i think so i really liked the sort of hybrid hybrid aesthetic that plays with flatness and depth and it plays with kind of three-dimensional images that we have come to expect from computer animation and leanings towards non-photorealistic more artisanal um more cartoonal in some in some way so i i liked the sort of shifting design palette i thought it exploited really well the possibility the visual possibilities of computer animation through magnifico and some of the, the the possibilities of kind of cell animation and character design so when those mushrooms came alive that was like my favorite bit because i was like oh these are these are sort of placing these cell animated characters that i would expect from something like flowers and trees from the 1930s into a computer animated film and i really liked that that really yeah i really liked that where the film is at its best, I thought, was exploiting the po creative possibilities of both of the media, irregardless of the narrative. Okay, it's a bit patchy, and there's a bit, you know, there's a bit of tension with regards to to some of the themes. But um, in terms of the, it, the its artistry, I thought it was really great. Yeah, actually. I mean, I mean, I so I am by no means an animation scholar in the sense of being able to beautifully say anything that you have just said there Chris uh, you could not have said it uh, I could not have said it any better myself especially because I'm not an animation scholar but something that really struck me was just the kind of the the hybridity of that animation I mm. thought that was a really nice kind of like flow back to the very traditional mm -hmm. classic animation that we were used to in the 30s yeah. 40s 50s 60s um and kind of like that, you know, that newer animation with the with the, you know, innovative software, you know, I'm thinking about when they did Tangled and they created an entire new software just to do Rapunzel's hair. And, you know, yeah. that was really like magical and, and very innovative. But I think for me, in terms of design and, and aesthetic, especially, um, this is more of a fan moment, really. But as an ACA fan, I can say that it's an academic moment. Um at the very beginning of the film, I saw that they made that book just like they did with Snow White, with Pinocchio, with Cinderella, with Sleeping Beauty. And I became so overcome by nostalgia that I cried in the middle of the cinema. And I did not care who heard me or saw me, but I did not know how much I missed the begin that beginning that strong beginning that disney always had that beautiful ornate book that they did and people can't see me but 
you know Alex and Chris will see behind me like I've got the Snow White and the Cinderella and the Sleeping Beauty books um displayed behind me on a shelf because I just think it's such a it really kind of threw you back to that traditional concept of a fairy tale with a book and the book opens and you've got this beautiful narration and that gives you that kind of background and context and we hadn't had that for such a long time and I thought the way that they did that as a nod back to their previous animation was just absolutely stunning. Um, but I I really enjoyed the kind of flatness but fullness almost of of the way that mm. the, the characters were animated and, and the way that kind of Star was animated as, you know, so whimsical and, you know, little bits of dust, you know, surrounding them all the time and... Yeah, I thought it was it was really beautiful. Yeah, no, I can Alex, I can throw you some software if you want. Uh, just just uh, meander. So um, uh, the, I need something to cut out. So why not? Sure, let's um, let's. Uh, no, it'll be your it'll be your bits. We'll cut. Um, so Disney, I suppose, since probably well throughout the nineties, really, but something like Tarzan, so nineteen ninety nine, that uses the program called Deep Canvas, which basically allows you to digitally paint in three dimensions. Um, I think since then, so nineteen ninety nine, since then, there's been thinking at Disney about how to integrate sell and digital in really interesting and kind of provocative and artistic and creative and, and kind of spectacular ways and and Pixar obviously do their thing and DreamWorks do their thing and Blue Sky when they were around did their thing and Sony does their thing and and so what what Disney have done because it has that legacy in cell animation they are a really good, the Disney Studios is this really interesting test case for thinking about how to integrate legacy and tradition with kind of modernity and technology and that often plays out through a lot of their films and the short films just as they did in the 30s and 40s that were these testing grounds for different kind of tech you have these short films like your paper man or get a horse or feast i think is the other one that um uh, so there's lots of these short films that are playing with cg watercolory painterly rendering techniques so a quick google tells me that ve the vector-based meander drawing system that disney used on wish um, allows artists this is from a piece from cartoon brew allows artists to quote draw strokes which are then interpolated or integrated frame by frame and then attached to cg characters so the technology is trying to combine these different ways of 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 drawing and i think in a film like wish which is sort of pulled between the future and the past um not necessarily in its narrative it's not about things that happened years and years ago necessarily um uh, it's it's all very self-contained the film actually um and they talk about memories but they never really suggest how long these memories have been sitting in this thing it's a bit confusing but um the visually that's where it plays with the old and new and that's where the nostalgia comes from and you have mm. the classic versus the mod so yeah i thought I, I agree with robin that i think there was a kind of beautifully the, the flattened what you said flattened and the fullness of the images mm. i thought were really great um yeah one of its best qualities vector-based meandering i thought it was yeah I, you said that classic yeah you texted me before yeah yeah that sure. old chestnut it's gonna it's gonna be that yeah yeah be, it'll be meandering but it'll be mainly vector-based yeah um, of course uh yeah cool i ha i have one final question on the movie and then we'll wrap up and, and robin can tell us a bit about some exciting stuff you've got coming up but uh, the film didn't do very well at the box office that's not that important to i i don't find that very necessarily interesting in and of itself um sometimes i think film historians are very guilty of, of equating artistic commercial success and cultural success as somehow the same thing but it didn't do very well and it's kick-started a kind of debate about where D disney goes next so did you have any thoughts as to 
either why it didn't do very well or what the consequences of that might be in terms of um, what we might expect from Disney in the future? I mean, I think there are there are lots of reasons why a film doesn't necessarily do very well at the box mm -hmm. office. Um, I think one of them is how cinema habits have changed since the global pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, less people go to the cinema. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the exact reason why Wish didn't do as well as, you know, they were perhaps yeah. hoping. Uh, but ultimately, I think it will absolutely, you know, kind of play a part. Um, I also think there's a lot to be said. Uh, something that I uh, was looking at before we had our chat today was, you know, what were, what were the different kind of successes of Disney Princess films at the box office? And because Disney princesses are, are my kind of area of, of research and obviously Frozen and Frozen 2 are, are very much at the top, um, followed by Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. Um, but then actually after that, like there's a really huge discrepancy between the, the those few. So, for example, um, according to MovieWeb, uh, Frozen 2 was $1.45 billion. Frozen was $1.28 billion. Um, and then actually, if I go down to the next kind of non-billion dollar film, it was Moana in 2016 and it made us 645 million. And I think sometimes, and obviously Wish did not, didn't do as well as that. It looks like they only made about uh, 209.7 million at box office. But let's be honest, like that's, that is, it's not bad. It's not awful. It's not as good as some of their previous films but again i think that's where some of the problems and some of the comparisons to oh but it didn't make the billions that frozen did and actually if you look at yes. it from a so I, i'm going to look at it from a disney princess perspective but actually if you look at all of the disney princess films that i can see in front of me only one two three four of them made a billion and actually, one of them was Beauty and the Beast, and it was the live action remake rather than the animated one. So I think there's, there really is something to be said there about not every single film that Disney is going to make is going to be a blockbuster. It, it's just not. It's just not. And unfortunately for them, their Disney 100 centennial <laughs> celebration film was yeah. not <laughs> one of those. Um, but ultimately you, you can't win at everything also i'm not going to lie i think it's also really important to think about the the wider films that came out this year and i'm sorry i'm sorry to say it i'm wearing the sweatshirt but the barbie movie absolutely smashed it and whilst yeah they're two very different kind of genres of film um ultimately there were other things that were kind of happening throughout this year, as well as, you know, impacts on audience habits around cinema going, but also just kind of the legacy that, that Disney's had where, you know, it's not always going to work out the way that they want it to. Mm. Well, Disney, Disney Animation... Or... If only Magnifico would learn that. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, no, I was going to say, because Disney Animation, as we know, and we, it's often talked about in phases, and, and um, I did... <clears throat> I was kind of trying to collate some of these... Um, some of these phases when thinking about the way that popular discourse and, and critics have sort of worked through some of the Disney phases, certainly since, I guess, the Renaissance. Um, so all these sort of... Uh, Digital Disney, revisionist era, renewal era. We're currently out of the end of the reboot or the revival era. We already know that Disney works in these peaks and troughs. And, and I think yeah. certainly 
something like Strange World, which was which didn't do particularly well. And I think that was that was that was released directly on Disney Plus, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. it was. Um, yeah, Strange World. Yeah. So that one. I mean, you could we, we can talk about how the narratives aren't necessarily as successful, or they aren't as good, or whatever whatever it is. Um, Disney films, and I feel like this way with with the Bond films as well, because they're this fixed. They're always going to be compared. They're always accumulative. Mm. It's always it's not as good as the last one. This Bond girl's yeah. different to the other one. It's different that you've already seen. So the stakes are quite high for something like wish because of because of the celebrations because of it, the fact it ties in with this short with this exhibition the fact that we are where we are with disney we we, we you know steamboat willie we can now all make a disney film with mickey mouse in it if we want to mm-hmm. uh, all these kinds all these things that are happening in 23 and 24 um yes covid has impacted the way that people go to the cinema if you think about the latest mission impossible film the the kind of box office of of, of that um but Disney, you're, they're, all, they're always going to be judged in relation, especially when Disney do like a a, a magicy mag, a magical film that trades heavy on the nostalgia. It's mm-hmm. setting itself up for these sen- yeah. for these uh, comparisons. But you're right, Robin, that they're they're not always going to do particularly well. And unfortunately, certain critics will go, well, the reason it didn't do very well is because it focuses on a woman of color in the lead, and yada, not make all these claims about why films don't do very well because it likes to have you know these critics like to have a target. These are the real yeah. reasons it didn't do very well. It's got nothing to do with the story or the fact that people are just a bit kind of fatigued, maybe, or scared to go back to the cinema. It's definitely mm. because somebody cast whatever Ariel as a black woman. How dare they? So there's all these different things that are going on. But um, I wonder, I wonder what what the sort of the legacy of this film will be in response to your question, Alex, whether it will be rediscovered or thought through or, or kind of, um, I don't know. It's an intro- it's always with with Disney, it's always great. I wonder what they're going to do next. So that's maybe mm. the exciting thing as yeah. well. Speaking of things that people will be doing hey. next, look at that, look at that. I've done, a, I've done over a hundred of these. Uh, Robin, you have some things coming up in 2024 um, that, that listeners might be very excited to hear. Yeah, yes, um, so many, many things kind of coming up. Um, Firstly, the International Journal of Disney Studies is open for calls for papers. So anybody who is interested um, in writing about Wish, maybe, um, but also writing about anything to do with the the Disney company and its intellectual properties. um, We have got calls for original articles, for book reviews, uh, but also for commentary as well. So if you went to the Disney 100 exhibition or or you're going to the one in Chicago, which hopefully I am, um, or, you, you know, mm-hmm. you, you've been to, you know, a Disney park and something has happened and you you want to tell the academic world about it, then, you know, please um, submit, 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 submit um, so that we can um, share your um, your scholarship with the world. Um, so there is so there's that which is very, very exciting. Our first mm-hmm. um, issue will be coming out uh, hopefully early 2025. Um so uh, it's it's very exciting at this point in time. And then we also Great. have our uh, Disney Culture and Society Research Network conference coming up. It's the second annual conference and it's going to be taking place in June uh, of this year of 2024. Um, so do head over to the website, uh, to the Disney website to kind of check out um, the, the conference uh, to be able to attend panels and keynotes and activities. And if you're interested in Disney studies, and you're a Disney Studies kind of person and you want to find more Disney Studies people, Mm. then the Disney website is definitely an easy place to find people. Um, Join, become a member. We do members events. We do mentoring. um, We do all sorts of things that are kind of uh, equipped to helping uh, Disney scholars um, 
enhance personally and professionally. Um, that's what it's all mm. about. Great. Well, we'll hi- yeah, we'll hyperlink to, to all of that and more um, in the in the blurb. But certainly, I think <clears throat> from seeing the, the 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 first conference, the the first one that you ran, it's sort of this incredible kind of quite overwhelming experience of Disney that runs across multiple days. So people should definitely take a look at the the how they how they how they can get involved. I think. Thank you. Yes, we'll link that in the show notes. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, that will be all very helpful. Otherwise, Robin, thanks so much for coming on the pod and chatting about Wish with yeah, us. Yeah, thank really you so fun. much for having me. I've really loved it. No, well, we've loved having you. Thank you so much. Um, you can, of course, follow us on uh, all your socials at Fananim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. You can use that handle as well at gmail.com to suggest future footnote episodes of the show. You can find the back catalogue um, of the podcast and the blog on fantasy-animation.org as well as wherever you get your podcasts. Yes. But um, is there some sort of pun probably about stars and wishing to be made, Chris? But um, I can't really think of one. No. So uh, I guess we'll just see you next time. And maybe you we'll could say, I wish to see you oh. next time. This is it. This is this is this is why we get experts in, Chris. Um, <laughs> we wish to see you next time um, is very, very good indeed. Um, yeah. Great. Uh, so until then. Bye.